Welcome to the Truth In My Days podcast, where we defend the Word of God against the challenges of men. Hello, this is Dr. Adrian Torres, here for another talk with Truth In My Days director, John Torres. Today, we are going to look at an interesting challenge against Christianity and against Jesus himself. This challenge says that God was known to the people of Israel for centuries. He revealed himself as the one God, made a covenant with his people through Moses, a covenant detailed in the Hebrew scriptures, and it is not what you see in Christianity. Jesus made claims for himself, claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God. Christianity claims that Jesus is deity, that God is triune, and that there is new covenant in Jesus that we are to follow. But if we know that the Old Testament is true, then we know that God is one, and we know his covenant, and we should not abandon all that for these novel claims of Christianity that are not anything like those of the Old Testament. How do we respond to this? Well, at first glance, that would seem to be a valid concern. Jesus' new covenant is based on faith in him, and it's not a covenant of law. Now, as the Bible recounts, uh, almost 3,500 years ago, God brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, There were slaves there, and God called Moses, sent him to confront Pharaoh, and he visited uh, 10 plagues upon the Egyptians because Pharaoh would not let them go. Uh, The purpose of the plagues was to demonstrate the power of the one true God over and against the Egyptian gods and show himself as the true God to everyone. And as a result, actually, uh, many Egyptians did, in fact, choose to join themselves to the covenant people. After the 10th plague, Pharaoh allowed the Israelites to leave, and Moses led them out. But soon after, Pharaoh changed his mind and sent the army after them. John, how do we know that Egyptians, some Egyptians actually followed the Hebrews out of Egypt and chose the Hebrew God? You will find that there is, in the Exodus account, in the book of Exodus, the chapter where they are leaving, uh, it says a mixed multitude went out with them. If you look up the meaning of the Hebrew term, that's what it means. It means people of other nations coming with them, and it's a multitude. It's many of them. So quite a number of Egyptians did, in fact, join themselves to the covenant people. Now, As we were saying, Pharaoh changed his mind, and as the Israelites were trapped at the shore of the Red Sea, the Egyptian army was coming after them with intent to destroy them, and God worked another amazing miracle, spreading the Red Sea before them, dividing the sea so that the Israelites could cross over in safety, and then closing the the Red Sea on top of the pursuing Egyptians. So that was enough, certainly, to prove the truth of God to the Israelites. Uh, He led them uh, via Moses to Mount Sinai, and there he made a covenant with them. And the covenant is a covenant of law uh, given through Moses. We read about it, uh, uh, Exodus and parts in Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Uh, To sum up uh, important points in Deuteronomy 29, we read, These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he made with them in Horeb, that's Deuteronomy 29.1. Continues in Deuteronomy 29.9-12, Therefore keep the words of this covenant 
and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. All of you stand today before the Lord, your God, your leaders and your tribes and your elders and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones and your wives, also the stranger who is in your camp, from the one who cuts your wood to the one who draws your water, that you may enter into covenant with the Lord your God and into his oath which the Lord your God makes with you today. And then in Exodus 24, 3, so Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has said we will do. So here was this covenant. The people of Israel willingly entered into it. It was a covenant uh, of laws, and they were commanded to live by it. And the indication was that this would be a perpetual covenant, uh, and it did go on for about 1,476 years until Jesus came. Uh, and the people lived by it very imperfectly. You know that they rebelled almost immediately, building the golden calves in, when they're still in the wilderness. And for most of the history of the nation, they were in rebellion. There were periods of uh, revival, but mostly they were in rebellion. But this went on for a very, very long time. And then along comes Jesus claiming to be the Son of God. And Jesus has a different message. Matthew 26, 28, he says, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And the new covenant was very different. It wasn't based on law. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Now that seems to, uh, on the surface to be a very, very different sort of covenant. And not only did he preach a new covenant and a different one, uh, he made amazing, audacious claims for himself. Uh, he claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be deity. In John 5, 23, he says, All should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So, John, does that mean that uh, Jesus is claiming to be the God of the Old Testament. The short answer to that is yes, but this is where we're going to get into the, uh, the triunity, this different nature of God. Part of the challenge addresses and says that this is not the picture of God in the Old Testament. But what you do have here is that Jesus is saying he must receive the same honor as the Father. What sort of person could make such a claim? Would it not be utter blasphemy if he's just another person? Uh, in John chapter 9, verses 35 to 37, he has healed a man who was born blind. That man then had run-ins with the, uh, the leaders in the synagogue, the Jewish leaders, and he was forced to decide to, who he's going to side with. He decided to side with Jesus, and they kicked him out of the synagogue. And what happens after that? We read, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, 
and it is he who is talking with you. He claimed to be the son of God. He claimed to be deity in John 8, 57 to 58, this well-known passage where he claimed to have been there before Abraham. And the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And the significance of that claim is twofold. Uh, first, he is claiming to be atemporal, because he doesn't say before Abraham was, I was, indicating he's been around for a long time, but he is in the present even before Abraham. And the second, you know that when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, and Moses asked, uh, what name should I give to the people? Who should I say sent me? And God answers from the bush, I am that I am. Tell them I am has sent you. And there's no uh, question about the fact that, that the Jews understood that he was claiming deity here because they tried to stone him for blasphemy after that. Uh, so how did this go over? How did this go over when Jesus comes? Well, of course, many people do follow him, but others seek to kill him. In John 5, 16 to 18, we read, for this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So there's no question, but that the claims Jesus was making were claims to deity, and it was understood as such by the people around him. And it led to quite a sharp division. There was a division among the people because of him. Uh, we see that in John 7, 40 to 43, for example. Many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, truly, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Well, this I would like to know. Jesus often says that he's the son of God. And when he says that, or when he calls God as his father, the Jews were offended and think he's blaspheming. Now, from the Jews' point of view, do they view son of God and or calling God the Father as meaning that he is God himself? How do they view Son of God? Well, as we saw in that reading in John 5, 16, they sought to kill him because he said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. So yes, claiming to be uh, the Son of God would be, in fact, equating himself with God. But is that mentioned in the Old Testament, Son of God? We'll get to that. Now, the Jews, you do hear them collectively referring to God as their father. and We are sons of God, but no one individual will do it. So these claims of Jesus led to division. We see it again in John 9, 16. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. And then again in John chapter 10, verses 17 to 21, Jesus says, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, 
and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. Therefore, there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. So there's always, then and now, there's a division among people about who Jesus is. But in this case, you could see this problem that Jesus is coming and he's saying things that don't seem to comport with their understanding coming out of the Old Testament. Uh, And that's why they're trying to figure this out. Uh, In John chapter 9, the leaders say to that man born blind, we know that God spoke to Moses, as for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. They believe Moses, therefore they believe the Old Testament picture of God. They believe the covenant. And here's Jesus coming, making these very, very different claims. And this was the one key point. How can all this that has gone on for 1,476 years, how could it be overturned? How can someone come along out of the blue and say that everything has changed and everything is different? And that is a very, very valid question, and it is a challenge for Christianity. Uh, The question is, can we meet that challenge? And the answer is yes. If we look, for example, at Amos chapter 3, verse 7, we read, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. If Jesus came out of the blue, made claims and said ideas that you could not find in some form in the Old Testament, it would be a problem. But here's the thing. The Lord God reveals his secret to the servants, the prophets. So the question is, did he reveal Jesus in the Old Testament, did he reveal that there was a new covenant coming? Indeed, he did. If we look at the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verses 31 to 34, we see this. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, He goes on to say, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And then no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know me, for they all shall know me. So when Jesus comes along and he says, here's a new covenant. Well, that's what God promised in the Old Testament. And through Jeremiah the prophet, he promised that there would be a new covenant. And not just that there would be a new covenant, but it would be different from the old one, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. In that case, why would Jesus' claims seem so unexpected and foreign to them? Surely the Pharisees who study the Old Testament law would be familiar with this passage from Jeremiah. Well, why they refuse to accept it, that that's uh, quite a broad discussion it's beyond the scope of Uh, today's talk. You can also ask that that, uh, why did the Pharisees, why did these people who are waiting for the Messiah, they knew there's a Messiah, they're looking for the Messiah, Jesus comes and says, I'm the Messiah, they call that blasphemy. It seems very strange. They're waiting for Messiah, but if somebody comes along, says he's the Messiah, 
then they call that blasphemy. So they're looking for it, and yet somehow they're refusing to see it. Surely they can check the scriptures to see if Jesus fulfilled the prophecies, if Jesus behaved like the Messiah is supposed to. Yes, they should. And they could. And Jesus said that to them. He said, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. He kept pointing to the scriptures. Uh, so... The assumption here is that these people were honest seekers for the truth, and that may not actually be the case. The point is that Jesus brought a new covenant, but God had already told that there would be one. So this is something they should have been ready for. And then we can ask, what about Jesus himself? Was he revealed in the Old Testament? And the answer to that is also yes. How? Well, there are three ways. Number one, this, this problem that they have with the Trinity, there are indications in the Old Testament of the Trinity, or more properly, indications of plurality within the Godhead, that the nature of God is not actually Unitarian. Now, this is not to say that a person before Jesus could have figured it out, but that after Jesus came and made these claims, they could have looked back at these passages and seen, hey, yeah. It is there. So there are indications of plurality within the Godhead. There's also mentions of God's Son. And, of course, there are Messianic prophecies. Uh, so let's look at these one by one. Uh, indications of plurality within the Godhead. You have it right at the very beginning. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that word there for God, the Hebrew word is Elohim. And Elohim is actually a plural word. It's not singular. Im, at the end of a word, the end of a noun, that's how in Hebrew you make the plural. Like in English, we put an S on it. Would that be, well, people might uh, argue that means more than one God made the heavens and the earth. You're saying in the beginning, God's heavens and the earth. Good question, but that's not the case. And I'll explain why. Uh, we see this plurality later in Genesis as well, when God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then it's equated to God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. So our likeness is equated to his likeness. How do we know that this should not be translated as God's? Uh, this way, you don't notice this uh, too much in English. You notice it if you speak a language like French or Spanish where verbs are conjugated according to the person and number of the noun. Uh, in French, for example, how do you say, how do you say I have? You say j'ai. But how do you say we have? Nous avons. Nous avons. You would never say nous et. You would never say je avons. The plural noun has to take the plural form of the verb. The singular noun has to take the singular form of the verb. Same thing with adjectives. And it's uniformly like that mm -hmm. in languages like French and Spanish. And it's like that in Hebrew also and in Greek. The plural noun has to take the plural verbs, plural adjectives. But in the case of Elohim, when it's referring to false gods, it takes the plural verbs, plural adjectives. But when Elohim is referring to God, the one God, the verbs associated with him, the adjectives associated with him are always singular. Okay, I see. So basically, Elohim, it's plural, and then created with singular. Exactly. So 
it's a it's a one God, but already we see that within that God, he's referred to as a plural. So we see this plurality within uh, the Godhead, as we see as well, as I said in Genesis 1, 26, where it says, let us make man in our image. Well, who, who's this our? Who is God talking to? He's only, man is only made in God's image. God can only be talking to God here, and yet he's speaking of God in the plural. We see this kind of thing actually in quite a number of places in the Old Testament where God is speaking to God as if it's one entity speaking to another. Look carefully at Psalm 45, verses 6 to 7, for example. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So who is the psalmist speaking to here? He's speaking to God. Oh, he's speaking to God. Your throne, O God. No question, he's speaking to God. But let's continue in that, that psalm. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. So the psalmist is speaking to God and says to God, God, your God has anointed you. Notice the you there is capitalized. Uh, And for us, it means that that must be a deity. So that God is anointing another deity uh, within the Godhead, I guess. But um, in the original language, do they capitalize words that are meant to be referring to deity? No, that's just a stylistic choice. You won't even find that in all of the translations. Uh, the King James Version, for example, doesn't. But the, we know that it is deity here because the psalmist is speaking to God. Your throne, O God. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. The you is God. So God is anointing God. So here's another example where God is speaking to God. And... A little extra detail, God has anointed you. Uh, anointed, what is that? Uh, in Hebrew, it's Mashiach, which we anglicize as Messiah, and in Greek, it's Christ. We already see that indication in Psalm 45. We see it uh, elsewhere. We see it in Isaiah 48, 12 to 16, which reads, Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth. And my right hand has stretched out the heavens. Who is speaking here? God. Has to be God. And as we continue through, uh, even I, I, even I have spoken. Yes, I have called him. Come near to me. Hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it, it was, I was there. And now the Lord God and his spirit have sent me. All right. So again, here the me. And it's coming from the mouth of Isaiah. Could that not be Isaiah? Did Isaiah lay the foundation of the earth? Did Isaiah's right hand stretch out the heavens? No, this this, me is God here. This is God speaking. And it's God who says, now the Lord God and his spirit have sent me. So who's sending the Lord God other than God himself? And here we see that hint of the, the Trinity because we have God speaking referring to another Lord God and the Spirit. All three are there in Isaiah 48. And again, I'm not saying that people reading this before Jesus came along would have taken it that way. They would have wondered about it. What's going on here? But once Jesus comes, then we can see it. Uh, One more example, uh, Zechariah chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. For thus says the Lord of hosts, no question of speaking here, thus says the Lord of hosts, He sent me after glory. Once again, the Lord of hosts is being sent by someone. 
who is who gets to send the Lord of hosts? Well, we see uh, in the next uh, verse, then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. So the Lord of hosts is sending the Lord of hosts. Mm-hmm. So no question, the Old Testament has these, these many, many indications of plurality within the Godhead. So when the New Testament reveals it fully, it's not just plurality, it's specifically a Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if people say, though, that's, that's not at all like the Old Testament, this is something completely new, and they look back and they can see that it's not really something completely new. So in the Old Testament, we don't know that the plurality is actually triune. We, we just know it's plural. Exactly. It's not fully revealed in the Old Testament, no question about that. But to be triune, there must be plurality within the Godhead, and that is revealed. So the idea of a radically unitarian God is already ruled out by what the Old Testament says here. Uh, Now, the second thing that we see in the Old Testament is mentions of God's Son, that God does, in fact, have a Son. Uh, In Proverbs 30, verse 4, for example, we read, Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name, if you know? Well, there is God and there is the son. And in Psalm 2, verse 11 to 12, we read, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. So we see this as well. We see the Son of God mentioned in the Old Testament. So, New Covenant promised indications of plurality within the Godhead, mentions of God's Son. And the third thing are Messianic prophecies. Now, people say, okay, the Messiah is coming, but that doesn't necessarily make him deity. But let's look at some of those prophecies. A well-known one from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Mm -hmm. And this one's interesting as well, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, because this one is actually quoted. In Matthew chapter 2, when Herod calls the uh, scribes to find out where the Messiah was to be born, and you read the account in in Matthew, they correctly identify the place as Bethlehem, for thus it is spoken by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. And that's where the quote ends in the New Testament. But if you keep reading in Micah 5.2, Out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Well, that is interesting. I never realized, or at least I never thought that uh, when referring to Jesus as in a child is born, he is also referred to as everlasting father, because I always think of Jesus as the son. But here, it makes it sound totally interchangeable. Yeah. The persons are not interchangeable, but they're all equally God, and God can be called Father. Uh, When the Jews spoke of God as Father, they weren't thinking of the first person of the triune Godhead. They're talking about God qua God. So, So in that way, yes, you could do that. 
And what's also interesting here from everlasting is only God can be from everlasting in the past. No, no entity that lives in the timeline that endures in time can possibly be from eternity in the past because going through the timeline, you can never get to any given point in time moving forward. So this is another strong indication of his deity. Um, and this is why Jesus said, as I mentioned before, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and these are they which testify of me. John 5.39, we think of this in reference to messianic prophecies, which, which is valid. But more than that, they are revealing that, yes, there's a new covenant coming as Jesus preaches. And yes, there is plurality within the Godhead. And Jesus, there is a son of God and Jesus is from everlasting. And this is why he keeps pointing to the scriptures, the truth about himself, Luke 24, 27, uh, Luke 24, 44 uh, to 45. Again, people might not have understood it then. But the claim that we can't accept Jesus because he is so different from what the Old Testament says is simply not true. Jesus was there all along, and there's nothing like this for anyone else. If you enjoy our content and think this is important material, the best compliment you can pay is by sharing this with your friends and family. This helps us out a lot. Also, if you enjoyed today's program, please like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. Thank you for listening to the Truth In My Days podcast with John Torse. We would love to hear from you. Please feel free to share any questions or comments you may have. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, MeWe, and YouTube. Simply search Truth In My Days as one word. Again, Truth In My Days as one word, no spaces in between. And you can connect with us. You may also visit our website for more comprehensive material and to learn more about our ministry. Our website is truthinmydays.com. Thank you. Thank you.